0: It's a beautiful day in this neighborhood, a beautiful day for a neighbor, would you be mine?
1: What I find so compelling about Francois Clemens is that the singular mission of his life was was not to be a celebrity or to be on TV. His mission was to be a professional singer. And from 1968 to 1993, when he was on what would go on to become one of the most influential TV shows of all time, That fact never changed. Throughout the filming of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, Francois sang at the Lincoln Center, at the Metropolitan Opera, and he even won a Grammy. I mean, just listen to this.
0: Come along with me. Hey, that's the
1: place.
0: Don't be afraid.
1: Now, I got to speak to Francois a little over a year ago when his memoir came out that is called Officer Clemens, and I wanted to replay that conversation now because I think we're all in need of some of the joy that Francois exudes. And also, I'm tired and wanted the week off, but also the joy, and I think you'll hear what I mean, so let's play it. From The Advocate Magazine, in partnership with GLAAD, I'm Jeffrey Masters, and this is LGBTQ&A Let's with the a now a 76-year-old a year old Francois day. Clemens. And
0: since we're together, we might as well say, oh, would you be mine? Could you be mine? Won't you be my neighbor?
1: All right, I want to jump right in. You know, there has been so much written about Mr. Rogers telling you that you could not be out of the closet if you wanted to stay on the show. Did that make you adjust or affect how you presented, even in private, in your personal life?
0: Yes, because I felt people, first of all, they would show the photograph to Fred. So I I felt an obligation not to be caught in those compromising situations. Because, you see, the first time... Someone told him I had gone to a club down in uh, Pittsburgh called The Playpen. So I went there with a buddy of mine. We were dancing, sweating, and I go home. That was the extent of it. But evidently somebody took it upon themselves to tell him that that I was seen there. And I felt violated. I'm an adult man. Who in the world is telling him what I'm doing? What I do when I'm not on the show is my business.
1: And yet you ultimately agreed to stay in the closet if you were going to stay on the show.
0: That was an emotional slash spiritual decision. I began to feel that I was there for a reason, not just a happenstance. Once you have this inner feeling that I was a a meeting with Destiny, that I I could not be casual and I couldn't deny what I knew. I wasn't going to. I thought about what, what would it be like if you don't hold up your end of the bargain if you don't sacrifice in a way that has honor brings honor so i really had this inner sense of obligation and commitment responsibility those words they haunted me
1: and when you say you had a responsibility who or what was that responsibility to
0: the responsibility was to have a good face for white people who were watching the show Black people were a little different in how they felt about my being on that show. But white people would say, oh, that's terrible. Mr. Rogers was so kind to you. And you are a gay person. And you were caught in that alley or that box top or the back of the truck or somewhere. And that's a disgrace. That's what I felt I could not allow to happen.
1: Were, were there any out gay black people in the media at that time?
0: Uh, no, there weren't a lot out. No. You know who led the band? the The European rock singers, Boy George, and that other one who just died. Um,
1: oh, is that David Bowie?
0: Yes, 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 yes. Now, you're asking me specifically about Black people. None of these guys I named are Black.
1: And I asked that because I didn't know if you ever considered not taking Mr. Rogers' advice and be coming out because there were so few in the media.
0: I'm, I am a front runner. I do not care what they think. I'm speaking of my personal opinion. I've been blessed with strength. And I will take care of myself. I don't care what they think. But I loved a man who did, Fred Rogers. And it would have been very, very painful for him to have to go through that whole episode. So I sat and I thought about it. And I said, you can do this. You can and you will. I hadn't had love from a father. And... It was so unconditional, so bountiful that I sat and thought, I I can't give that up. I've, I've never had it. Now I've got it, and I'm not going to throw it away. I'm not going to treat it lightly and casually. I love this man. He's treating me in a way that makes me feel whole, makes me feel like a person that I'm wanted and needed and cherished in that community. They became my family, all of them.
1: Oh, so coming out, you would have lost the show, but you also would have lost your family. It would have been everything.
0: It would have been a terrible loss. I had pulled in so tight when my stepfather beat me up. I said that, you know, they're relatives, and I can't trust them. I began to allow myself to be feeling, to be human.
1: When Mr. Rogers asked you to stay in the closet if you wanted to be on the show, he also suggested that you get married Would you have gotten married to your ex-wife had he not suggested it?
0: Yes, because he wasn't the only one, I think, who was advising me. She was my best friend. So we hung out all the time. All the time. An hour on the telephone was nothing for us. And I didn't feel at that time that I was courting her as a lover rather than just simply expressing that this is my friend. I, I prefer her over all you guys.
1: And you did have a few gay friends who knew you were gay. What was their reaction to you getting married?
0: Oh, they were surprised. They said, what, what are you getting married for? And I said, well, that's my destiny. I think that's my life. I do have a lot of affection for her. And maybe that'll turn into erotic attraction. It never did. And when I was making love to her, I was thinking about my boy, boyfriend or somebody. And so it became apparent to me that I had made a serious mistake Because she was a very, very nice person, and she was deserving of a better relationship. And that's what I basically said to her. You know, I can't give you, I can't be the husband that you need or want. I I just can't. Yeah. I felt like a failure. I had tried to do something, and I was really down in in the mouth, they say. I was so depressed that I had tried something big, and I had bit off more than I could chew.
1: Did Fred Rogers ever meet any of the men you had relationships with?
0: Oh, later on, he did. And I have to tell you, he didn't have anything against gay people. I don't know how to share it with you, but I didn't have very many relationships with people. I've never lived with anyone except my former wife. I've always lived alone, and not by choice. I think there were only two people that I had very quiet, demure relationships with that lasted for 15 years each.
1: Were they quiet because you felt that you couldn't come out of the closet fully?
0: Yes. In fact, one of them said to me, don't dress up tonight so they won't recognize you. You won't get any attention. And just the two of us can go to this restaurant and this movie and be very quiet and loving and cuddly and
1: sweet. And when did you come out publicly?
0: Maybe about 90. When I started the Harlem Spiritual Ensemble, I felt very today. I was was holding a big bundle of life. I decided I'm coming out. I don't care who knows it. I'm not going to hide it. And so from then on, if people ask, not very many, I told them yes. I had a young sister who committed suicide and and I I found the body. So that was another terrible thing. And because of that, she loved nightclub music and, you know, dancing and moving around. And she played a mean piano for a young lady. As a tribute to her, I said, okay, I'm going to put together a nightclub act. And I dedicated it to her. A friend of mine arranged for me to get several nights at the Bushes. And it was a huge success. People came from everywhere saying, oh my God, we didn't know you could sing on this pop music, Francois. Memories. But my heart wasn't in it. After a short period, uh, maybe six months, a year, I said, why are you doing this?
1: I mean, it's so interesting that you never had a goal to be on TV. The singular focus of your life has been to be a singer, and you, and you did that and you're accomplished. Why is it that you were drawn always to Black spirituals? It seems like that is the type of music you have the most connection with.
0: Uh, first of all, I have been brutalized as a kid, so I carried a certain sad wound. I really did. And the consoling, consolation, was when I would sing, Sometimes I feel like a motherless child I meant that. I feel like a motherless child. Sometimes I feel like a motherless child. A long way from home. A long way from home. Something happens when I go there. And I didn't know it then, but I know now I have access to the ancestors. I'm a different person. Fred said it to me also. He said, Francois, I heard you sing that concert. You're a very, very different person when you come off stage. When you're on stage, something else is going on. But you have this almost effervescent personality, almost bubbly. Not quite. I'm not a bubble, but I'm a different person. And I know it.
1: And I know that you are a spiritual person. Do you still consider yourself to be religious?
0: Religious, no, in the sense that I don't deal with anybody's dogma. I'm not Presbyterian or Lutheran or Methodist or Episcopal or Baptist. None of that, Catholic. Forget it. They were the hard, hardest people against me when I was young, in the sense that they say, if you're gay, you're going to hell. You're an abomination. You're cursed. So I wasn't going to lay down and die. And so I moved on, and I began to find people who did approve and who did nurture and stroke me for the person that I am. And Fred Rogers was one of them behind the scenes. You'll never find a kind of person, never. And uh, he kind of took me under his wing when Dr. King got assassinated. He came to my house. I was living in the ghetto, (laughs) in the bougie, the bourgeois ghetto. And when I went out on my porch, I could look down over the uh, hills and I could see smoke. It was on fire. And Fred and uh, John Lively, the organist, they were concerned. So they, they called me and said, get your bags together. We're coming over there and get you. And honestly, I stood there and I thought, who am I? My father never did. My stepfather never did. My uncles never did. Well, why are they, these men doing something? Because they're concerned about my welfare. Well, I went home with him. I felt very comforted and very protected. That's the word I think I'm looking for. I felt protected. I didn't always feel protected as a kid during that period of time was when Fred finally said to me, I understand you've been through something pretty raggedy, Francois, and you survived it. Here you are with us. And he said, we want you to be happy. Nobody has said that to me before. And he said, if you need something, you want something, you ask me for it. Ask me. I'm going to be there for
1: you. The way you describe your relationship, it sounds like calling him your friend is not, like, big enough word, that he was father, brother, everything.
0: You are very perceptive, my friend. And I thank you for lending this situation your insight. Because, you know, there are people who put a little niche nuance in there that it was sexual. It was not sexual at all. It was spiritual. It was emotional. He supported me in a way that I had never had. I didn't have money. I came from the wrong side of the tracks. And um, I was trying to Struggled to get my way through grad school and thought I was going to sink. And he came along and offered me a job that gave me some money. And I accepted the generous offer that had been given to me the program and now this personal relationship with Fred. And it wasn't just one way. And so he would say, Franz, what does it feel like to go to bed hungry? And it's very difficult to put something like that into words. I knew that my parents didn't have any money. Nobody was eating in that, that night. And she had said, Tomorrow we'll get up and we'll try again, but I don't have anything else for you. That's what we sometimes talked about. We talked about what it felt like to be beaten by your parents. And so he would say, You had a very difficult life, Francois. Why aren't you acting wild and crazy and angry? And I said to him very honestly, You're a part of it. You're one of the reasons I don't act crazy. But I am wounded, and I know it. So he and I talked. He said, Maybe you should go see a psychiatrist. Well, I wasn't going to go see a psychiatrist because in the ghetto, if you're going to see a psychiatrist, that means you're crazy. And I'm not crazy. <laughs> That's what I said. I didn't quite understand the word wound, but I did after he and I chatted. And then I called up at Columbia University, and I was able to just unburden my heart about the pain of being beaten by my stepfather and being rejected by my mother. I used to ask myself, am I a mistake? Daniel asked that on the program. Nobody is a mistake, Lady Aberlin tells him. You're here for a reason. You may have to figure it out. It may take time, but you're no mistake, Francois. And so my heart began to uh, lighten up, ease up. Take it, take it easy, man. Don't be so hard on yourself. What I found is I carry that reservoir. Sometimes I open, I open it up and peek at it, but it doesn't
1: control me anymore. You know, with the the violence and abuse that you went through as a kid, a lot of it was shocking. And I just wonder with you, what you just said now about like not letting it control you anymore, how long did it take to be able to say that?
0: Uh, 28, 27, 28 years old. Because I was living in New York. I had just moved there for a little while. I separated from my wife. So there were things that uh, had been stirred up (laughs) that I had to address. You know, you can't pretend. I was miserable. I was walking down the street crying. So I said, that'll never do. One has to have the courage and the strength to look at whatever the problem is, to name it, call it what it is, because that's how you get your power back, and it's how you grow and you are strong. I'm a very strong person, not because I'm mean or I'm making somebody do something, but I make a decision, and then I get on with it.
1: You know, you moved to New York City in your late 20s. You actually moved in 1969, the year of Stonewall. And I just wonder, at that time, what did you hear about what happened at Stonewall?
0: Lord have mercy. Uh, I moved in August, and it had just happened a month or two before. So I snuck down to the village. I didn't tell my wife where I was going or, or anybody. And I went down to the village, and I saw the building. They had swept and cleaned it, so it was almost pristine. You couldn't tell where the violence had gone on. But the spirit of that violence was down there. And I wasn't the only one. There were tourists who had come down to look and uh, see this little club, this little nowhere nobody, Stonewall Club. And see, this is where they were fighting, the police and the gay people. As they say, you know, one minute you're over there in the park sucking my dick, and now you're over here hitting me with your stick. What's going on? This is not right. Something is wrong in this picture. And it was true because I used to go down to the village as a voyeur since I was married. I went down there and looked around, let me tell you. What I thought was, these guys must be crazy because society is going to squelch them. They're not going to get what they're after. And I was wrong.
1: So even back then at that time, it was being talked about as a massive deal.
0: It was a massive deal. I have to tell you. I was the boy who didn't want to be Officer Clemens because the police were very brutal. And they shot black boys in the back. They strung them up. The, the judge, the, the uh, mortician, the, the lawyers, everybody was against you. So I knew about police brutality. I really felt such pride. I, you know, I said, I'm alive to see this. I lived, I wasn't that old, but I've lived to see gay people standing up, standing tall and saying, you cannot push me anymore. I've been pushed enough. And I
1: saw a change. That's amazing. I have one more question for you. And it's about gender. You write really movingly about female opera roles, and you say those are the roles that that your soul is in. You wrote this, quote, It was in those moments that I truly felt like a woman. I felt tricked into my masculine body and existence. I wrestled with my sense of having been misplaced, misconfigured. To me, that sounds like someone who is questioning their gender, And I just wonder if that is something that you still think about and experience today.
0: Well, yes, I do think about it because we have so many trans coming out and making it known that they are trans. When it comes to myself and my understanding, my creativity, that's really where this femininity starts. Over the years, I've communicated with a guardian angel and several guides. I I think of it as a gift. And it's beautiful. What they're singing is, Mournful, painful music of loss and suffering. I'm a better listener than I
1: appear. I think you seem like a good listener. What? I said <laughs> that I thought you seemed like a good listener. <laughs> well, uh,
0: <laughs> I used to think I was good-looking, but oh,
1: oh, 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 oh! oh I, I said, um, I said, good listener, a, a good listener. Oh,
0: listener, I thought you said looker. <laughs> well, you know what? I learned from Fred. I watched him. I felt a little bit like, you know, I was on the outer circle. He was in the middle of the hurricane, but I was out there. A lot of times people were not paying me any attention, but I was paying them attention. I didn't want to disturb Fred. He creates a world and it's wonderful. It's p- compassionate. It's empathetic. And I would watch and I'd say, I'm going to be like that one day. I want to give in that deep meaningful way. So I asked him what was how he does it? What's going on? Who And he told me about the sacred space between him and the camera. Sacred space? And he explained to me that feeling that he has for people when he's doing his television program opens up another channel. And that communication is very sacred to him. And he won't let anybody broach it or interrupt. And I watched him and I said, yeah, I'm going to do that when I'm on stage. I'm going directly into the soul or the heart of that woman or that man. I was at the Metropolitan for seven seasons. you know what they asked me to sing? American Negro Spirituals. At first, I was insulted. My goodness, I paid a fortune to get through Oberlin and to get through uh, Carnegie Mellon. And why can't I sing La Boheme, La Traviata, or Elisir Damore, you know, one of those wonderful lyric tenor arias and stuff. And they said, no, please do this. Maestro Vogel and Maestro um, John Gutman said to me, when you sing Spirituals, Francois, you connect with the pain that we feel too. We were in Auschwitz together. We were in the, 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 the death camps in Poland and Austria and we can't talk about that. As Americans stay up here. They pretend oh you know they were still having a good time. But we were being killed, our families we didn't see our mothers anymore. They said, You know what that's like. And when you sing motherless child, swing low sweet chariot, you know what we're feeling. We know what you're feeling. And so, would you please do that for me? So I never again asked why I was singing In the Sweet By and By or Amazing Grace or Dr. King's favorite song was Precious Lord, Take My Hand. And I mean, I'd look up and they were crying.
1: I think that's such an amazing place to leave it at. You've been so generous with your time. Thank you so much. Of course I'll be generous with
0: you. Are you kidding? He's got the whole world in
1: And that was Francois Clemens. We originally spoke last year when his memoir came out. That book is called Officer Clemens. And then as always, if you enjoyed the interview, please leave a comment on Apple Podcasts and help us spread the word. Doing things like that really is one of the biggest ways you can help our show grow. So thank you so much to everyone who does that. We're brought to you by The Advocate Magazine in partnership with GLAAD. I'm Jeffrey Masters, and I'll see you next week. Bye in his hand
0: he's got everybody right up in his hand he's got the whole